Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of AEC Marketing for Principals. Today, I'm speaking with Ashley Campbell, Senior Vice President for HIT Contracting, a leading national contractor. And I'm also joined by my partner in strategy, you all know her, Judy Sparks. Thank you, ladies, both of you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. You know, Ashley, we are so excited to have you. Um, I want to take a few minutes and just have you, you know, maybe share your journey with our listeners. I know that you've really always been in construction for your career and your journey is quite impressive. You know, my understanding is you you started out with a national home builder um, with Pulte Homes, and then you made the switch to a national commercial contractor, and now you're the senior VP at HIT. So I would love for you just to share your story and maybe how you moved from sales to the leadership of a multi-billion dollar construction firm, you know, just sure. small little steps. Sure. So, um, yeah, I, I um, was in college in the early 2000s, which I feels to me like five years ago, but it's actually 20 years ago. Um, and um, I'm, I'm located, I'm from DC area. I went to school in um, Virginia and uh, the home industry was just booming at that time. And so I was recruited by Pulte. It was a big national brand. Um, and I did an internship with them and their marketing team. And I loved it. Um, I come from a family with a lot of construction people and a lot of real estate people. Um, and so I've just kind of been around a lot of, um, residential building in my life. Um, so then they hired me full time, um, but they brought me in as a sales, um, associate. And, um, I will say I'm, probably, you know, I'm a natural extrovert, but I'm more of a marketer than I am a sales um, professional. And we could go right down that rabbit hole of talking about the difference if people really want to, but that's a <laughs> topic for another day. Um, but, you know, I think that spending my first um, two years of my career in sales was really important because I think that sale, being able to sell and understanding sales um, is a, is a life skill. It's a great career skill. Um, and it was exciting. I was selling big homes and making a lot of money as a young person. That's what sales is for. Right. And then the home market crashed, um, in 2007 and things got, obviously, I think most people know things got very bad and, um, we entered the great recession. And so I was looking for, um, they were letting sales managers go left and right. And so I started looking for another job and I was looking at Centex homes, um, which at the time was another big national brand. Um, they had a commercial arm that, that they had, um, acquired. Um, and they said, well, we're not really hiring sales managers for Centex Homes, but we have an opportunity with Centex Construction. And the commercial market is really picking up because there was a federal program called um, Base Realignment, um, BRAC, some people in the federal world know it. Basically, right. the yep. DOD was taking all of their facilities and doing massive billions and billions and billions of dollars of basically realignment of all their facilities and personnel. And so I got hired by Centex Construction and um, I was a marketer. I was a proposal writer. I think probably many people in your audience, um, you know, when they think of marketing, they think of proposal management because that's such an important part of the marketing um you know, process in AAC. Um, and so for 10 years, I, I was a proposal manager and I did a couple of different things. I did at one point go into business development, um, which of course is our word for sales um, in, in um, AEC. Right. Um, and um, for about 18 months, maybe two years, I was in business development, specifically um, focused on DOD work. And, um, you know, I, I think that um, consumer sales is very different than professional services sales. For sure. Um, yep. Again, great experience. I would say probably a fail for me. If I had to list a couple of things that I failed at, that would probably be one of them. Um, I was very, very grateful um, that at the time, I should back up, Centex was then acquired in 2008 by Balfour Beatty um, PLC, which is one of the largest professional services firms in the world. They're based in London. Most people know them internationally. Yep. Their US arm <laughs> is Balfour Beatty Construction. Um, and so they had full like, you know, just, it was a full acquisition of Centex and really, um, in the early years, they didn't make a ton, a ton of changes, but so anyways, I was very lucky that, um, Centex, Alphabeti let me fail and then let me come back to their marketing team. And they actually, you know, put me right back into marketing and then accelerated my growth. Um, in 2014, I was, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. Firms go through a lot of big firms go through a lot of, um, 
right? Realignments and restructurings and these people because, you know, it's just, it's big firm life. Um, And so in 2014, I was kind of ready for my next step. um, And um, HIT at the time was recruiting me through my network. And so I always talk you know, to young people about the power of your network, your next job, your next step, your next opportunity, your next project will come through your network, right? Um, Maybe a little different in today's market where the opportunities abound. But um, so HIT was recruiting me. And at the time they were a sizable um, regional builder is what I would call them. Um, You know, they were doing about $750 million a year, which was pretty much the same size as the division at Balfour Beatty that I was in their mid-Atlantic division. Um, But they had a great vision for the company and they are a third generation owned company, family owned company. And um, now at the time, I didn't know this, but they had a whole five year vision to bring in new leadership, um, promoting from within to grow their brand, to expand, to be the goal was to be a top 50 in our um, general contractor. And at the time, I think we were like 89th or something. Right. Okay. Okay. So I was kind of like, yeah, regional contractor. I, I want to work for a big global brand, <laughs> but it was a great opportunity. And Kim Roy, who's now the CEO of Hit Contracting, she's going into, I think, her fifth year as CEO, at the time was a senior vice president. And marketing fell under her umbrella, as I think it does at a lot of firms. There was no marketer at the table, right? The most senior level was the director. And so they brought me in as a director. And um, it's one of those things that, yeah, I think it was a risk for me, but I I think that um, what an incredibly, I will say there's luck always involved, right? A lot of hard work, um, but an incredibly lucky move for me to work for a firm that truly had a vision. And this year, um, you know, our projections are saying four and a half to $5 billion in revenue. We've got 1,300 like 1,500 people now. Um, we have 13 offices across the country. Um, we're ranked 43rd on the ENR top 50. So we we hit that goal. And now the goal is to be a top 20. And, um, you know, just building the brand has been an incredible experience. Um, my role today actually looks very different. Um, when people say senior vice president of what, I typically say culture and brand. Um, in my umbrella, I oversee corporate communications, um, Marketing, of course, uh, corporate business development, which is really business business development and sales strategy. Okay. Um, client experience, and then on my other side, sort of my other part of my brain, I oversee human resources and employee experience as well. Um, so, and we're a big company, so um, we have a very robust um, HR and people team, um, and so that's been a really um, fun thing, exciting opportunity for me. Is I didn't, I'm not an HR professional, and I bow down to the HR professionals. Um, I, you know, I'm always like, I'm not here to tell you how to do HR. I have the most wonderful VP of HR, who's just a rock star. I, you know, for me, it's that connection. Um, And Judy and I, when we first had a virtual coffee and started talking, you know, I talk a lot about brand experience and by employee experience and client experience. That's how you make a brand experience, Um, specifically in professional services, right? Um, So that's, that's kind of how I am where I am. But is an amazing story. And I mean, I just want to pick your brain on so many of those topics you just kind of um, sprinkled out there for. So this is going to be a really great episode, but let's start, you know, kind of the whole theme of this season is really around gaps and, you know, how do we fill those gaps, whether it's a language gap between, you know, operations and sales or even sales and marketing, and certainly, you know, from HR to marketing, right. And and what does that look like? And then I, I would just kind of love to to understand from your perspective, maybe just while you've been at HIT, what are some of the gaps that you had to close to be successful as you brought all of that underneath your umbrella? Yeah. 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 And um, Katie, you were reading my mind because, um, <laughs> sorry to interrupt, but um, as you're telling me about your journey or telling us about your journey, I'm just thinking about, oh gosh, going from residential to commercial, the, there's a big gap that you you really had to fill. And then really climbing the ladder during high growth years and just you know, staying in control of the narrative and keeping your credibility, both with the people you are supporting internally, as well as the people you're trying to mentor as you're growing. There's so many gaps. And um, Ashley, what I loved about our initial conversation was when I told you about the season and filling the gap, you're like, I am the gap. (laughs) So, and I've served that role since the beginning and you've done it with just 
such grace and perseverance. And obviously you've been hugely successful. So tell alongside Katie's question, you know, starting from the beginning, what were some of the major gaps? Like, you know, we were just saying before this episode, growth and comfort do not coexist. So I'm sure you've, you have, you know, made your way through some very hard growing pains, I could imagine. And, you know, I think a lot of us sit here and think, you know, we love this industry, but does this industry love us? And how do we, how do we bust through the glass ceiling? And how do we get a seat at the table at a billion dollar company? And you've done it. So tell us about those gaps, because the gaps is where it gets hard. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So first and foremost, like I have to shout out to not only the current leadership team at HIT, um, which is primarily our CEO and our two co-presidents, Drew Mucci and Jeremy Barden. Um, Kim Mm -hmm. very, very much understands being a a marketing-led firm or brand-led firm. She she understands the importance of that. And I think there is a new generation of leaders in AEC and principals who have a deeper understanding of how important brand is and how the globalization that came from COVID and technology and the changing millennial buyers, because a lot of our primary decision makers now are older millennials or elder millennials, Mm -hmm. however you want to say it. I myself am an elder geriatric millennial, (laughs) right? Um, Right. Just squeaking in on the 1980s. Um, You know, and I, I think that that sets the tone first and foremost um, for a firm, right? That the principals have to believe in the power of brand um, and the importance of brand. Um, Second, I think that I have to give a shout out to um, the chairman and the owners at HIT because it's very hard to hand your company that you've built over 90 years, you know, that your family built to somebody else. And then that somebody else says, well, we're going to make brand a focus, right? So I think that um, shout out to all the principals and owners who are willing to change and to grow and to bring other people into their firms and say, I'm hiring you to be smart and to tell me how to do things, not for me to tell you how to do your job, right? So that's, to me, it starts there. Well, and Judy and I, just to interject, you know, Judy and I both came from, you know, a high growth international design build firm. And, you know, I think, I think what you said was true. You know, it, it took the leadership with a vision of really focusing on brand, focusing on sales and marketing, um, which is somewhat of a pivot because, you know, so many of our AEC firms focus on operations, you know, the execution of the technical skill set. But when you, when you do align around that vision and you lean into sales and marketing, that growth comes fast and furious. Right. And then on the the backside of it is trying to fill it with the, with the HR and, um, you know, people. We'll talk about that too. (laughs) Um, you know, I would say biggest growing pain for me and biggest gap. Um, and, and I see this and Judy and I have talked, we talked about this and I see this in, in so many firms and I'm trying to figure out a way to fix this for the people who come up underneath me. This idea that proposals are marketing and marketing are proposals in AAC is so prevalent. And if you look at the firms that are the high growth firms, they are the firms that believe in marketing and it's not a team of proposal writers. That said, I never want to minimize the importance of proposals as the end of the sales cycle, right? And, and, um, I was 10 years as a proposal writer. So I I believe in proposals. By the way, I also believe in what you learn through being a proposal manager. You are an excellent project manager. You have excellent writing skills. Everything I learned about construction and everything I know about construction was from reading about it, writing about it, Mm -hmm. interviewing people, thinking about it all the time, asking questions, being the lay person. So, and and I think, you know, coming into um, AEC, you know, it's very different than coming into like, like I'll use the example of like for marketers, consumer packaged goods, right? Everybody consumes consumer packaged goods. Everybody has chips in their house and deodorant and coffee, right? So you know how you buy it, you know what it's like to experience that, you know, point of sale. It's very hard to come into our industry as a marketer when you will likely never be exposed as a construction buyer or a consumer of construction products or an architect, services, you know, maybe you've had an addition to your home or you've done, you know, home renovations. And that is usually the extent of most marketers exposure to our our industry. So that first gap is coming in and trying to figure out what the heck are we selling? It's so complex. It is very (laughs) complex, what we sell. Um, So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is this, you know, we, we raise up a lot of marketers in in the proposal um, area. And then, 
they often leave our industry because they're like, I, I want to do more marketing. I want to do more marketing than sales enablement. Right. Mm-hmm. And then like, for me, I, in a lot of ways, yes, I have a marketing degree. Okay. I got my marketing degree in 2005 and then everything blew up in terms of technology and social media and online sales and all of digital commerce. I didn't learn any of those things in college and neither did anybody else because it, what didn't exist when we were in college. Right. So poo poo to my marketing degree, right. How, how Mm -hmm. do people at our level learn about marketing, like true Marcom? A lot of it is through on the job training. It's through hiring super smart people who actually have that knowledge and then learning from them. But I do see a gap, um, especially I think for smaller firms that might have one or two marketers on the team who focus primarily on enabling sales through proposals, right? How do those young people learn broader marketing skills? Especially if we, if those smaller firms think we don't have the opportunity to offer you really because they're not interested in a broader marketing strategy. And the problem goes deeper because, you know, systemically, you know, my part-time, sometimes I, I teach marketing at the College of design formerly the college of architecture at georgia tech and the truth is is that most of your architectural and business building construction degrees do not incorporate marketing education in your curriculum and if you have the you know if you have a good mentor that says hey you might want to take a marketing class or you might want to take a business class as your elective before you you graduate that would that would serve you well because what you find out when you get into the real world is you have to have those technical skills, but it, the pathway to principle is usually your ability to connect with other humans and to understand their preferences and how they buy goods and services and how you can take an empathetic approach. So if you have a one or two person marketing department in a smaller firm and sales enablement, I love that term. We call it a, a sales initiated ask here at Smartogies, where marketing really doesn't get set into motion at most small and mid-sized firms in the in you know in the world really unless there's a sales initiated ask a principal asks for trade show materials or what do we need to do for this that or the other or we have an rfq that just came out and then marketing is set into motion and i think that that's a systemic issue just because so much of this industry's leadership really doesn't understand what's possible and that's the big gap. And, you know, here at Smartogies, we have reshifted our focus to really, you know, we feel like our best contribution to the world is to help fill that gap <laughs> any way we that. can. So we can empower the marketers to have fulfilling careers in our industry because you can, you don't oh, have to absolutely. leave to find that, absolutely. but you might, you might need to um, bring some of that education into your firm. And Ashley, what I love about your story is, it can be done. You are living proof that you can come in and know very little about our industry and what you put into it, you get out of it. And I think that's the piece that might be lost on the younger marketers that even today, I kind of chuckled when you said, you know, while you were in school, they didn't teach all these things. Well, guess what? They don't teach them now either. (laughs) And so they might teach how to use social media, but they won't teach the application of how to make it relevant to your audience. And that's what you learn on the job from great mentors like yourself. If you, you know, if someone's lucky enough to be able to get on your team and learn from you, like you, you've learned from Kim and, um, and, and shout out you know, to agencies. I, shout out to agencies because every time I bring an agency in, which we, you know, obviously we're an in-house, we have more of an in-house agency right. model, but we use agencies all the time. You know, we're doing a website redevelopment right now. Every right. time I work with an agency, I'm like, man, these are the smartest marketers. Oh, you know, and can and you just say that again? <laughs> you are the smartest marketers, right? And everybody, I think in the marketing world, most marketers. Oh, the know, checks like, in the mail. <laughs> right. There you go. Smart everybody. Um, um, I, do, well, I was going to say, though, I think uh, there is definitely, um, and, and we know, like, you know, in the broader marketing world, there is this shift that a lot of big brands are now bringing in-house agency, right? Where they, they yeah. realize it's hard sometimes, like there's a balance, right? You need both in-house marketers who deeply understand your brand. And by the way, are mm-hmm. tied to the things that the agencies help you launch and build. 
but that you live right. with it for the rest of your life, right? So, so you have that like sense, that deep sense of like accountability and ownership to it. Um, you know what I was going to say too um, about principles and seeing the value of marketing. One of the biggest changes I would say in the last it's probably seven or eight years, um, top of funnel marketing, right? Which is brand awareness and brand perception work and what I would say conditioning the market, not conditioning a particular client or conditioning for a particular opportunity used to be so cost prohibited. You want to take out a, a ad in, in the Wall Street Journal, one run on a print ad, you're talking $150,000. That's a right. whole marketing budget for most mid-sized firms, right? Yeah, Small firms. Absolutely. So now yeah. today with search engine marketing and digital advertising and SEO, mm -hmm. You could say, I have $20,000 to spend. And, and this is a real life example. Last year, we did an SEM test pilot with an agency. We said we we're going to spend $18,000 and we would like to see a 30 to 50% increase in lead generation over 90 days. We saw a 400% increase. That's amazing. For $18,000. It works. You know, digital one, sells one itself. Totally. Yeah. And you know, the best thing about the volume of work we do, because, you know, for HIT, our jobs will be anywhere from $500,000 because we really do everything where we call ourselves a life cycle mm -hmm. builder up to a billion to a billion and a half dollars. We won one project from a lead from this SEM generation campaign. The campaign is paid for a hundred times over. Like 100%. That's, the, that's the magic of being in the volume of work yep. that we're in as marketers. It's not consumer packaged goods where somebody buying one bag of chips is never going to pay for your ad, right? Um, so there's great power in that. But I, I don't think most principles of firms, unless they come from a marketing or sales background, take sales out and say, unless you come from a background, you don't know these things, right? Right. Unless you have an Ashley Campbell on staff or someone like Ashley who so, can be that language translator, you know, that language gap. Yes. I don't know if you read my last Sparks newsletter, but I, I really dove into like there is it's I, I imagine sometimes like the the can, you know, the you know, the with the string on it. The with old the string because yeah. something something gets lost in translation because yeah. a principal says, I want X. And the marketer says, okay, I can do that. And they produce something and X doesn't look like X, right? right. And the principal is like, I don't understand why they didn't understand. And the marketer is like, I don't understand why this doesn't hit the mark. So there's this huge language gap. And unless you have somebody who understands the industry, because they took the time like you to dive in and read every proposal they put together, ask questions about what do you mean by, you know, value management? And what do you mean by lean? And what do you mean by, you know, a carbon neutral footprint? Like, what do you mean? And unless they like were this pesky little inquisitive, curious marketer in the beginning to absorb all that knowledge. And then also at the same time, keep up with marketing and what the rest of the B2B world is doing. It's very rare to be that translator. And I think that marketers have a new role now. And it is literally to translate and educate all the parties for the benefit of the brand. And yeah. I think that's something just um, I, from an outside or observing you, Ashley, and the way that you present yourself and the way that obviously hits brand is just really impressive. Um, you do that exceptionally well. So what do you, how do you do that without, okay, I'm going to kind of go down this path. How do you do that without being called names behind your back? <laughs> Aggressive. Like, you know, not Aggressive. all superintendents like for the young marketer female, you know, in her, you know, geriatric millennial years coming in and saying, hey, you might want to approach the customer like this when right. he's been doing it for 40 years and he doesn't want to be told how to act. So how do you do how do you fill that gap? So, so two things on your example about the principal asking the marketer for something. Right. So first off, the way, and, and this is a learning lesson for the principals out there, right? Mm -hmm. When you have an objective and, and the marketers have to help guide this because typically marketers have a business background, right? Instead of mm -hmm. telling me you need, you want to go to trade shows and you need trade show materials, tell me I'm seeking to access X buyers 
the buyers look like this, the buyers behave this way. How do you think we should access the buyers? That's the question you ask the marketer because then the marketer's brain starts moving and says, I wouldn't even have gone trade show route. I would have gone a great content piece and do an email campaign, right? Um, And by the way, guess what? That costs nothing versus a trade show where you're going to spend $30,000 and you're, you know, it's very hard to prove ROI there. Yeah. So so that's the first thing. The second thing is what you said about having an Ashley Campbell on your team. Ashley Campbell's brain didn't, didn't come up with the tactic to employ the SEM. I hired somebody from out of, um, out of industry last year. I hired somebody from agency side and I said, come in and tell me how to do this stuff because I don't know. I don't even know where to start. I think it's low hanging fruit. I'm looking around and none of my my, my competition isn't doing this. And sure enough, he came in and he was like, oh my goodness, there is so much low hanging fruit here. Oh yeah. So it's not, yep. this is the key too, right? Like we as marketers, <laughs> if you get the seat at the table, just remember that you're an AC marketer. If you've been an AC for a long time and you can do your best to continue your education, to get your MBA, to read all ad week and try to keep up, but you can't be expected to both speak the language and sit at the table and have all the digital tactics that have a, that change every year, hire the best people and don't be scared to say like, I can't like, listen, there's a place and a time to go out in the market when you're hiring for somebody and say, must have two to five years of AAC experience. There's a time and a place for that, right? You're looking for right. a badass proposal writer to come in and win you life sciences work and build your resume. Then there, there's a place for that. You're hiring for a, let's say a communications manager. Wait, don't go out and say they need two to five years of AAC experience. No, they don't. Look for somebody who has been at a firm that you admire. That's probably outside of AEC and say, what can we learn from those firms? Right. Humans are humans and buyers are buyers, whether they're buying a, a billion dollar construction package or they're buying potato chips at the grocery store. You're still using the same buyer behavior in that. a lot of ways. Yeah, it's yeah. P to P, right? People to people. It's, it's a, not yeah, necessarily B to C or right. B to C or B to B. It's really P to P. But, you know, there is something about kind of owning being an AEC marketer within the B to B marketing space, because there is. I think there's another language gap where, you know, particularly the the younger, like maybe it's a generational gap more than a language gap, but the younger millennials or even Gen Z who's just graduating from college seeking their first jobs, they see cool mediums like TikTok and and Snapchat and and they they make relationships that way, right? They communicate that way, but they don't have enough life experience to really understand that. While that might be applicable, maybe ten years from now, as those buyers become, you know, decision makers as they enter their late right. geriatric right. generational yeah. years. Yeah. Um, but right now, we're still selling to you know the older millennials and the Gen Xers, and maybe some still some baby boomers um, who haven't said peace out due to COVID. But most of our baby boomers have, you know gone on to to either start transitioning or they've transitioned. Right. So it's leaving this generation X, uh, my generation, which you and Katie are, you know, a little bit younger than me. So I call you guys the Xennial, Xennials, not yes. the millennials, because you're right on that cusp, you know, that cusper generation. Um, it leaves us Xers to really um, struggle with explaining to the newer generations that we're still selling to people who don't TikTok necessarily right. for business. Like they just started using LinkedIn, like we use Facebook, which a lot, we can go down that rabbit hole too. A lot of people don't like that, but I'm celebrating that the Gen Xers are even getting online. I mean, that's a huge breakthrough. <laughs> right. Right. You know, and, and I would say for our parking lot, for our later discussion about right um, employee experience and recruitment branding, table that TikTok conversation over there. Um, okay. But but you're right about, again, and this is where we in AEC, I think, have more learning to do from other, um, especially B2C. The, we don't spend, we, I mean, the collective we in AEC, principals and marketers, we don't spend as much time thinking about our buyer's behavior as mm-hmm. B2C companies do, right? Where they're oh, analyzing. Right. Not and they're remotely. Putting, 
right? Microphones on test groups and sending them into supermarkets to watch how they, you know, work the shelves and where are their eyes going and all of that. Right. You can't really do a secret shopper to buy a billion dollar construction program, Ashley. Exactly. <laughs> I, don't, exactly. I, I don't think that works. Right. But we're, there's data out there, right? There's tons of data that you can buy. There's research that you can do on your own that you can invest in. Focus groups. When was the last time that your firm got Oh my a gosh, I can't believe you just said that. Together, <laughs> yeah. Right? So last, gosh, two years ago um, HIT, and, and I think this is where um, in a lot of ways HIT is leading brand um, in, especially in the construction. I would put AE in a different category in terms of um, maybe, you know, designers, I think are in a different headspace than construction executives just by nature. Yep. yep. Um, and I certainly follow Gensler and a lot of the big design houses and in how they do their branding and marketing because they do a really good job. But in the construction realm, um, you know, I think that that hit is leading. And one of the things we started talking about two years ago was client experience and this idea of watching really great franchises like Chick-fil-A, um, like Starbucks, mm -hmm. right? And how they can move into a market and create an experience um, that is so dependable. And that is how they're growing their businesses, right? That, that's where their high growth comes from. Obviously, it's different on professional services. And when you're buying a $500 million construction um, you know, contract, you're looking for something different than hot coffee. But this idea of, and, and we started feeling it because as we, and this is another um, probably pitfall for high growth firms and I, all the principals who are in high growth firms. And now you factor in the great resignation and the amount of new people at every company, everybody is going to deal with this. What you sell in AC is an experience, right? I we're in construction, but we don't actually, right? We don't pour concrete. We don't, we don't have, right? We don't have um, rebar stacked up in the back of our office, right? We are professional services. So what we sell is communication, project management, accountability, safety management, all of those things. When you're selling an experience and then you realize, which we realized three years ago, this was even before the great resignation, it was just due to being a high growth firm. Um, over two thirds of our people have been at the company less than three years. Wow. How That's are you selling an experience? And how are you making sure that that experience is what we're selling at the top of the funnel and talking about yeah. and what the client is getting? Well, we and a disconnect. Them. But I mean, when you're growing yeah, that and, fast too, I mean, how do, you, how do you even make sure they understand what your brand promise is? That's right. So, like, and thus enter CX and Hey, AEC, per usual, we're way behind the ball on this. Everybody else in B2C <laughs> has been talking about customer experience for years, right? They've been right. obsessed with it. They've been measuring it and defining it. We in AAC are just really starting to understand and realize it's actually more important to our type of services that we sell than it is to B2C, right? Um, so, well, and a good example of that is... Right. If you look at the larger B2B brands, you know, I mean, when account-based marketing was born out of the technology enterprise space, Absolutely. I mean, the IBMs of the world knew long ago, the sales forces of the world knew long ago that if you're going to sell an enterprise technology solution to another large enterprise company, it's right. not about the technology or the product. It's about the service and the experience. Right. And so thereby, you know, we get a lot of our creativity and our creative ideas from B2C. So Katie and I've been to numerous, you know, IEG conferences, yeah. you know, um, in another life, I developed a sports complex. So I had to learn a lot about corporate partnerships and bringing those, you know, big brands like Coca-Cola and Chick-fil-A and Wellstar and others together um, around a new brand. So we learned a lot with B2C, but what we what we found out as we're hearing about LG's activation at the Super Bowl, where they wrapped the tunnels like front load washer and dryers and, you know, the uniforms came out, you know, went in dirty and they came, came back out, out clean. clean. We're yeah. like, wow, that's a great idea. And, you know, the budget for that was like, you know, $2 million. And I'm like, well, I've got 5,000 bucks for a trade show. Right. What can we do? You know, so. Right. So then Katie and I started to really navigate more to the larger B2B conferences. And the thing is, even the large B2B companies out there, the publicly traded ones that are selling services, you know, think about your food service companies, your, you know, your Siemens of the world. I mean, they don't have as robust budgets either. 
uh, compared to B2C, but they're doing some really cool things and they're making their dollars go really far. And I think that the the marketers in, in the AEC space that really want a seat at the table and really want to be that respected voice that fills the gap within their industry, really, I mean, there's not time in the workday. It's not your employer's obligation to make time during, you know, the workday for you to dive into that. I mean, I think that you probably have spent endless hours in your career, probably on vacation at night, waiting at doctor's appointments, reading relevant articles on your phone, investing yourself in your career, right? So I think that um, the B2C examples are super relevant to get creativity, but I find the B2B examples are super relevant to get application. Um, And between the two, we have been able to really move the needle for a lot of brands in our industry um, that maybe, you know, I think about when I was a CMO at an international design build firm, um, I was like you, Ashley, I had an in-house, I built an in-house agency model and then I had three agencies on retainer um, because we couldn't possibly afford to have all of the expertise we needed sitting on our payroll all of the time. So we outsourced PR, we outsourced, you know, web, we outsourced a lot of, you know, national ads and media buys, you know, and most companies are not going to have that to work with. I mean, I recently looked on LinkedIn, just curious to see the numbers, you know, how many firms, um, in the U.S. are based in the U.S. um, that are in the architecture and planning space. There's only like 43,000 firms. And then when you break it down by vertical and you break it down by your geographic footprint, most firms are competing with the same 10 people all the time, right? So it's not, you don't have to go, you know, National Super Bowl commercial, but there are things you can do that are very achievable. And most of the time we tell firms that if you stop doing the stuff that you have just always done, but you're not sure about the ROI on, you can reallocate those funds to do things that are more meaningful. So that's right. That's um, right. Just want to, you know, to on that. that. Yeah. And that's such a great point. I think, you know, not, and listen, we all want to like do big things. And this is where marketers get their passion and feel fulfillment is through that creativity right. and really being able to produce ROI and show like I had an idea. I did something we've never right. done before and it resulted in a sale and revenue. But that being said, what we sell is very serious, right? Um, mm-hmm. I think about when an engineer puts their stamp on something and then the building collapses. I mean, people's 100%. lives are at stake, people's careers are at stake, right? Um, so what we sell is so serious. And what what you're talking about, Judy, also is when we, so once we catch a, a potential buyer's eye, how are we showing them that we're smart and we add value? You know, we all talk about right. being a trusted advisor. I think every professional services firm uses that word. As they should, we should all want to be trusted advisors. So takes you right into, right? We've been talking about content marketing for years and doing good content marketing is extremely challenging as we all know. 100%. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, But, but guess what? Content marketing also, I don't want to say it's free. It's never free. It's marketers time. It's operations time. It's, you know, principles time, but it's a low cost methodology, right? That if you can develop incredible content, I mean, talk about somebody that's, the firm that we probably all watch the most for their content creation is Gensler. I mean, gosh, the stuff they put out, I'm like, how many researchers do you have on staff? How many content writers do you have on staff? It's incredible content, right? And we all read it. Um, Are there other firms out there that are probably leading the charge in a lot of ways, but not producing the content and therefore missing out? Absolutely. 100%, right? And a lot of firms really need help to understand what is meaningful content, because what's interesting to you as a contractor may not be interesting to your buyer. And again, that language gap and great marketers are able to fill that gap so that, you know, the author feels like they're bestowing the information. They feel like their, their audience needs to know, but it's also packaged in a way that's brings value to their audience. Because how many times have you received technical led content that, you read and you're thinking, gosh, you're paying me and I don't even want to read this. Right. Right. (laughs) And so tell me about how you take that back internally and make it better without offending the 
the author. Right. So, so I think um, one thing that we need to do more of, and again, here we are in AAC, maybe a little behind the ball, but very few firms that I know have formal client listening um, channels, right? So mm-hmm. um, are you measuring your net promoter score? Are you surveying right. your clients? Are you, I mean, you look at, again, going back, actually, you know, um, when I was selling new homes, JD Power was the big, and you guys have all heard, oh, it's the car industry, the JD Power, you know, yep. choice the consumer's choice. It was so important to find out how the experience was for the consumer. We obsessed about it. And we obsessed about what did the nuance of that feedback mean? It's interesting that in AAC, I don't see a lot of obsessing over what the client says, right? And a lot of firms don't even have formal listening channels. They'll say, well, we we do, you know, we meet with each of our clients once a year. Okay. Do you have a formal system of how you take that feedback. And then when you get that feedback, how does it drive the evolution of your firm? That is huge for HIT. We have very formalized listening channels. We have um, a trusted advisor client group where we pick clients to, to basically ask them things like, hey, what do you think if we were to move in this direction? Or what yeah. do you think of this message? Does this resonate with you? Um, and then when when you get that feedback, you know, if we're doing if we're surveying, you know, and we have a couple of different levels of surveying, and one of them is business reviews, which is very formal in-person, um, you know, conversations, but we're using metrics and we're asking questions and we're measuring and it's data. If we hear things like, um, I'm trying to think of a good example, like I use the example of this idea or this um, challenge that we had a couple of years ago, we were hearing in our business reviews from our clients. Yeah. I worked with a team in California and usually I work with a team in DC and it wasn't the same experience and it became a theme. And, and we immediately said, this is a theme and it needs to drive the evolution of our company. And we launched a client experience initiative. That's a five-year initiative to define how we work and how we teach our people to do things the way we do them and it becomes a methodology. Um, and, yeah. and it really has changed a lot of our thought process. And we talk a lot about experience. So how you listen to your clients and then not only say, yeah, I heard you. And this is like, right. Content is one tiny piece of that. All the things you're asking them, how are you then turning around saying, Hey, by the way, we heard you. And I'm following up at the end of the year and telling you, here's how your feedback affected our approach. That's incredibly important to clients. Yeah, let's 100%. Um, let's pivot or maybe dig a little bit deeper Ashley and talk a little bit about you know really you know professional services it's a service driven industry it's a people industry um and you've talked a lot about brand till this point and we've been talking about this customer experience and customer listening and all of that is great but let's talk about it from an employer brand standpoint you know you mentioned you know you guys were growing 25% and i know a lot of corporations out there the the major thing is we've got more work than we have people to do it so everybody's recruiting so let's talk a little bit from your perspective just about the employer brand standpoint and what are some of those you know gaps that you might see coming from marketing to HR and communicating internally versus externally. Let's talk a little bit about yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and specifically, how do you maintain that, you know, everything you've described to now is what we what we say in our practice is brand living, right? right. It's that experience that your customer has and the theme that you're describing where, you know, the West Coast experience and the East Coast experience or Project A, you know, and Project B had different teams, different experience. Um, in our branding workshops, we call that heterogeneity. You know, how do you ensure that the experience a customer has with Project Manager A is as close to possible to every other project manager right. in your right. in your shop? And it, they do it the hit way, you know, right. so and it starts with. Uh Yeah, I was just going to say, and let's add in the challenge that absolutely no construction or no building project is ever the same. I don't care if it's a, you know, TD America bank that you're, they say, Mm -hmm. we're going to do 500 of us and it's based on two different models. It's still not the same. It's different every single time. And so that's part of the challenge, right? Right. Um, So let's talk about employer. Let's, let's back up and just acknowledge first and foremost that the great resignation and COVID-19 and remote work and Gen Z has changed American working culture forever. And I think in a lot of ways, in a wonderful, wonderful way, for those of us who are leaders of firms, it's probably one of the biggest challenges we're ever going to face, right? 
Now I will say, because we are all um, a little more seasoned on this call. um, You know, I, we all lived through the days where the layoffs were every other Friday and the rounds of layoffs came and came and even the most talented people got laid off and everybody, you know, has an MBA because there was no job. So people just went back to school because they didn't know what else to do. Um, Mm -hmm. Not to be a downer, but that time will come again. Right. Um, I think and, it's already started, actually. I think, I started think the pendulum is already swinging. Inflation, the potential global conflict, all of those things. So, mm-hmm. um, it, like, I, I do I do want to just acknowledge that because I think that we all as leaders have to cut ourselves a little slack and say, like, yes, we are in a brand new world and we're trying to figure it out. And, and the goal here is to be really open and not to be haters on Gen Z and say they're so lazy and they bounce through jobs. You know, I hear a lot of that and I'm like, but it doesn't matter because they can have any job they want right now. It's an incredible um, employee's market, right? It's not an employer's market. It's an employee's market. So, but, you know, the connection between the employee experience and the client experience is do you want somebody to deliver an experience for your client that you obsess over, that they obsess over, that they think about how they're going to make it special and how they're going to do their best, you better treat them damn well. Because a mm-hmm. disengaged, mediocrely, you know, happy employee is not going to do all the things you need them to do. And that was probably the biggest kick in the butt that corporate America has gotten in the past two years. Stop treating your people like poop and then expecting them to treat your clients with the gold star, the gold standard, right? Right. Um, but what people want and, and what's driving, um, employee experience right now is very different than what, um, the Googles and the metas of the world thought it was seven or eight years ago when they were breaking, um, they were setting new standards with ping pong tables and in-house catered lunches and bounce houses and what else they were doing. Unlimited PTO. Unlimited PTO (laughs) and bring your dog to work day and puppy petting days and all these things. It's really interesting because the millennials ate that up, right? Right? Like we at the time were their target audience and we thought this was just grand because we were coming from working primarily for baby boomers who were like, you're just lucky to have a job. Right. So right. that changed the rhetoric. You should pay me to be here. Right. <laughs> well, and at that point you probably should, right. We were just so right. happy to have a job and have a power. Right. The rhetoric is changing again. Right. And I will say, um, so I have um, preteen children, a soon to be 13 year old and a 10 year old. And what drives Gen Z is incredibly um, interesting and, and we can be frustrated with them. And I think every generation is frustrated with the generations that sandwich them because we don't understand them. But um, I am thinking a lot about employee experience primarily for Gen Z, because like you said, I have Gen Zers on my team right now. Mm-hmm. I have people who graduated from college last year. And in your home, you and know, it, home. it's right. funny and because Gen Z is, Gen Z is defined as um, age nine to 24. So, you know, the 24 year olds are probably super offended that are in the same category as a nine year old, but it's really based on the learning styles. And yeah. So uh, yeah, I I too have a Gen Z living under my roof. So So one thing we talked about, Judy, and I think this will be a broader um, marketing methodology shift. Um, It's the same way that trends in fashion are no longer on a 10 year cycle. They're on a one year cycle. I think we're going to start slicing generations into 10 years instead of 20 years. It's not going to be I the agree. birth group. It's going to be my generation is defined by 9-11 because I'm an elder mm-hmm. millennial, right? And other millennials weren't even, uh, they weren't even Born. teenagers when 9-11 happened. Mm-hmm. They couldn't even talk about it. So it's more in those 10 years. What are those current events, right? I mean, great resignation, COVID, that's going to define the older Gen Zs, my kids probably won't honestly even remember it. It'll just be a blip in their radar. So, so -hmm. that's really interesting how that's going to shift, I think. Um, But, you know, when I think about Gen Z and what I've learned and I'm not an expert in it, but I'm thinking a lot about it and my HR team is getting ready to launch um, an employee experience initiative because we want to, we want to approach it much like we did client experience, which is tons of research, tons of mapping, tons of focus groups before you start making decisions based on what you think you know about people, because you don't know you, that's the first thing is to say, we don't know, we need research and we need to ask them what's important to them. Um, But I think what we do know right now is, um, and, and I would say for all of us too, COVID really shook us, right? It shook sort of our sense of who we are and it's our sense of the global community and our, our mortality even, right? And like every day living with purpose has become a theme for everyone, right? And I think 
being purpose-driven and feeling called to a purpose. And when you go to work, which a lot of people don't go to work anymore, right? They here I am in my bedroom from my, my office, my home <laughs> office, right? Although I do go to the office almost every day, mainly for my own sanity. And I love, but anyways, <laughs> right. But like w- when we log into our computers and we do work, what are we doing? Because I'm not, I'm not working for a company who wants to build more buildings. That's not what our company wants to do. Do we want to be profitable? Yes, of course we want to be profitable, but what is the purpose? And we're very clear about our purpose, right? Um, one of the things that that we believe in is the American dream. And I don't mean that in a weird, like, uh, like aggressive, like let's start a convoy and head to Congress kind of American dream, right? I'm talking about the American that, that um, people can have nothing, can have nothing but their hard work ethic and construction specifically is a place where you can build a career and you can build a portfolio of experiences and you can build a company you can start a small business, right? You look at like, especially I think a lot about our subcontractors and we talk about our subcontractor experience. These are almost all family owned small businesses that were started by the ingenuity of one or two people, brothers or, you know, parents, and they're grown into these very successful companies. That's the American dream. And construction is the place where you can go to still build the American dream in a lot of ways. Right. You know, so talking about like changing lives and creating opportunity, I think that's a that's a huge piece of the purpose of what I work for and what my company offers to a lot of people. You know, we were a small business and we employ thousands of small businesses. When you talk about that to a young person, instead of saying, well, our goal is to build a big campus for Meta because Meta is a cool company and we want to make a lot of money. Those are two very different messages. Um, and yeah. I think how right, you frame it is very important. <laughs> And how you think about it is really important. And then how you connect to every single person. And it's especially hard, I think, for um, corporate folks um, who are not maybe on the front lines of like delivering the work and who don't see the people they that you know, they employ every day or the clients that are, that you are probably building one of the biggest investments that they'll ever make for their company. And maybe their company is a company they founded or their parents founded, right? Um, for the principals, maybe who are listening to this, have you thought about what your purpose is as a company? Do you know what it is? Do you talk about it? How do you connect every person on your front lines to that purpose? How are you clear about your purpose? And it's okay to say, we need to be profitable because listen, we can't create opportunities for other people and change skylines and change careers and change lives and deliver, you know, on the biggest investment for our clients if we can't be profitable. So yes, first and foremost, we need to be profitable. Right. Course. I think people shy away from that. Um, but but are you clear about your purpose? And then from your purpose, backing out and saying, how do we hire people that align to our core values, right? Um, who want to help us achieve this purpose? And then how the hard work I really think in employee experience is connecting the people to the purpose. That's it. It's not the ping pong tables and the catered lunches, it's connecting people to purpose. I love that. I think that's that's so true and, and great advice. Um yeah. Purpose is is used a lot. You know, it's a word that gets thrown around a lot, but I think it's super important, especially now as people are coming out of, you know, the pandemic and thinking about what is post, you know, understanding that we're never going back to what it was. It's just in so many ways, right? No industry is going to go back to exactly what it was um, pre 2020. And I think as people, we have all dug deep to say, what is our purpose? And and that's true here at Smartages too. You know, yeah. we look a lot different today than we did two years ago. And that was on purpose because we just started to get away from our purpose, which is to help AEC firms grow. And, you know, I think that we've, we've hit a point in our evolution as an agency where there's a lot of agencies now serving our industry. And we feel like they do a really great job, but we're, you know, being one of the first agencies to put our, put our flag out and say, we are AEC and we're not ashamed to say it. Like, that's all we do. If, if your service or product hits dirt at some point, we're your people, but sorry, Coca-Cola, we're not your people. You know, that's right. a, that's a very brave decision as a marketer to say, Absolutely. we're not going to take the B2C opportunities that are lying at our our feet. And we're going to stay with our purpose, which is we love this industry. We love everyone in it. 
yes, as a marketer, you know, I'm not going to make that, you know, $27 million base salary that the CMO of Meta makes, but I'm going to love that, you know, 50 person architectural firm who, you know, 10 years ago, it was just the principal and his dog at his kitchen table. And now they've grown a company that they never dreamt would get to there. And the same fundamental things are true that they didn't have a marketing education and they do have to step into another league of competition. And I feel like our purpose is these days um, is really to teach firms how to do that rather than do it for them. And that's where we are bringing a lot of joy to ourselves and our staff. And I think at the end of the day, if you do what you love, then it's not work, right? That's right. You know, you mentioned just real quickly on the TikTok thing, um, when you think about employee experience and what people Mm -hmm. want is to peel back the curtain and to get us to get a glimpse of what it's really like to work somewhere. Tools like TikTok and platforms like that are incredible, right? So we're dabbling a little bit in it, mainly for recruiting purposes, because that is where that audience of 21 to 29 year olds are, is they are on TikTok. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm interested to see how it kind of pans out. And we have such a great social media team. One of the things we just posted last week was, you know, that flip a switch TikTok, like I just flipped a switch. So it's like these three guys in suits and they're in the bathroom washing their hands and then the light switch and they're in PPE and they're all like, it's just, you know what? It's fun. It is fun. Right. It gives you a glimpse of like, Hey, those are project managers and senior project managers. And they're making TikToks because we said they could, because we said it's fun because construction is fun and and we love to do it. That joy. That's awesome. I love that. What you said, Judy, about joy. We want to have joy. Yes. It's really important. Absolutely. You know, Marie Kondo spark joy. (laughs) (laughs) Ladies, I think, um, I'd like to maybe kind of come back to our conversation that you started on, Ashley, and you kind of started sharing your story and you gave a bunch of shout outs, right? You gave some shout outs to the leadership at HIT and, um, you know, we're all women here and it's not all that often that we get to sit with someone like yourself who has made it to the leadership table and certainly not someone that also works for a female CEO in construction. So can we talk maybe just a minute, maybe celebrate Kimberly Roy a little bit and maybe share with us what that has been like. Um, and you know, how, how is that different, you know, being female led? Right. So, um, first and foremost, I know she would want me to say this, but I'm going to say it because she deserves to have it said, you know, we, I, this whole thing about like a female CEO, I will tell you, she's probably one of the most talented CEOs in in AEC. And and a lot of people see that. Um, Mm -hmm. And she is extremely strategic and she came up through operations, right? She came up through being a project executive and she has a degree from Virginia Tech in building construction. Um, But she has a very different mindset. Um, And I think that's, that's, probably the biggest thing. And then second, yes, I think, you know, obviously we know there she's the only female CEO in the ENR top 100 or was, I think, um, I think Holder just named a president, yes, uh, a woman president Beth, which is yep. awesome. Beth Studley. Yes. yes. She's awesome too. Right. I, I just okay, admire all those female CEOs. <laughs> 100 big companies. And these are all billion dollar plus companies. You have two right. women. In There's them, two. Right. Right. And that's, that's even worse numbers than fortune 500. Right. Um, but I will say that, um, you know, I, I think that it does, you know, listen, representation is very, very important. It's important that we all see people who look like us, um, in leadership roles so that we can imagine and emulate and, and see them go through some of the same challenges. Right. Like, um, so I think it does set the tone. I also would say, um, you know, the, the pandemic, changed our industry in a lot of ways. It's okay to have a little bit of vulnerability and softness in our industry. And I think for a long time, that was really looked down upon. And I, I don't think right. necessarily it's women driving that. It's it's our own mortality or whatever it was that we were made aware of during COVID has really softened us in a lot of ways. And I think that's probably one of the things that we needed the most. Um, but you know, it, we talk a lot about diversity equity and inclusion. And we have a very well-defined DE&I plan and, and we've made a lot of investments. Um, one of the things we we just did, and here's the thing, like, yes, we can all talk about DE&I. We can all try to help our people be more inclusive. We can 
try to be more equitable. But what are those tactical things that you're doing? Because I'll tell you two things that we did last year that I don't think we've celebrated quite enough. Um, we set a living wage standard. So nobody, no full-time employee at HIT contracting makes less than $60,000. Nobody. Not the not the receptionist, not the office manager, nobody. Because you you need to make a living wage, right? And we've been incredibly profitable and successful as a company. And why? Because of the work that people put in, right? They are our greatest asset. And so if they're your greatest asset, pay them like they're your greatest asset. That's so important. Um, second, um, we are um, awarding diversity grants. So in other words, it's not just enough to say, oh, let's hire more people of color or you know more women okay, well, then you get them in the door. How are you going to promote them? How are you going to ensure they grow? So we're, we're giving, we're awarding um, very sizable diversity grants to 10 to 20 people a year and making a very pointed and intentional investment in them. So, you know, well, I, I think how is that, that grant means, how is the grant money utilized by the individuals? So it depends, right? I think this goes back to every person is an individual human. And if, if we, in this, now I'm going to put my HR hat on and say, if I'm your HR business partner and I'm looking at you, Judy, and you, Katie, and thinking about what you need to get to the next level, it's not going to be the same thing, right? right. Um, one may need confidence. One may need financial management skills. One may need writing skills. One may need to work on executive presence, right? So it's looking at people as individuals and offering them an array of things that they could do and saying, work with your mentor and your supervisor and your HR business partner to determine which of these things are going to set you on a path towards success. Um, that's employee experience. Like these, these are the things, you know? I love the concept of an HR business partner. I, this is the first time I've heard anyone phrase it that way. Tell me so more about that. Yeah, that's, that is pretty, I would say, and listen, I wish I had my right-hand gal, my VP of HR sitting here because she knows so much more than me. Um, but HR business partners is in, in large firms. That is a very common role. And so the idea is, listen, you could actually extend that and say you have marketing business partners, right? Because in my firm, mm -hmm. we have every single, what we call business unit. So office, market sector, they all have one person in marketing. That's their person. And that might be a person who's a proposal manager. It might be a person who's a knowledge manager. But this idea of they are your business partner, they are your liaison to all things marketing and can get you connected to whatever you need. An HR business partner may have a full-time role like director of payroll or benefits manager, but you're also an HR business partner to a select group of employees. And, and it's essentially like, um, kind of like how school counselors operate, right? Like if you have a challenge or you don't know what kind of training to get, you have an employee relations issue, right? They are, right. they need to hold that role of HR business partner. And it's, it's a little bit of a catch-all of all the things that you would want from HR. Um, that's awesome. And I think it's great. That's really it's amazing. What, what humans need is they need somebody they can call and say, I need, help. I mean, it almost sounds like a concierge service, you know, for employees that they have, you know, a lifeline, whether it's marketing or HR or, or something that doesn't pertain to their day-to-day -day billable job or their day-to-day -day yeah. support job, um, that they have an advocate connected to the core of the company. I think that's brilliant. That's yeah. really, really good advice for, well, everybody. <laughs> Katie, did I answer your question? I felt like I went off on kind of a tangent. I think you, I think your story is just great. So yes, in a, in a, <laughs> the, um, you know, basically what I'm surmising from working with someone like Kimberly is just the investment in the people and, and really bringing about that employer experience and treating everyone as a person um, where they are and where they need. So yeah. Um, and, you know, to that point, too, because what Judy was saying about the 40 year veteran superintendent, um, I would advise all marketers and this every marketer is going to be tasked in some way with thinking about employee experience and employer brand right moving forward, because most of us, like you mentioned, and God bless us, what a what a time to be alive. We have more work than we can do. Right. If you had said that we were going to do that in 15 years, we'd all be like, yeah, right. Um, so we're all fighting for people now. Right. Mm -hmm. Um and we're marketing, we're spending a lot of our marketing resources and, and brain power on how do we get to those people. We're all going to be tasked with thinking about that. Um, and it's everything. Thank you so much for joining me today, ladies. Um, Ashley, I have thoroughly enjoyed talking with you and enjoyed our conversation. I, you know, I just want to applaud you. 
um, for your journey. It is so inspiring and it's impressive as a fellow, you know, geriatric millennial and, you know, someone that's grown up in design and construction and, and loves the industry and loves marketing and really loves being given that opportunity to, to work with my, you know, business partners and say, Hey, who are you trying to reach? What are you trying to do? Let's talk about an idea together. So I've really enjoyed today's conversation and Judy, you know, your observations are always appreciated, always cut right through to the truth right there. And so Ashley, I would just love for you to maybe give some lasting advice to our audience today on how they might approach conversations with their sales and marketing team in terms maybe what they could do to overcome some of those gaps. Yeah. You know, I think first and foremost, we talked a little bit about the the mindset for principles of um, marketing and brand value and thinking about the way that you approach branding. Um, we, we gave that example of don't tell me you need a trade show booth, right? Ask, tell me what you're trying to achieve and let me give you the ideas, right? And, and looking towards your marketing and brand and communication leaders as business advisors, um, and then giving them that seat at the table to influence the brand and the firm. And I think that, um, Maybe some see it as a risk, but I, I do think there's a huge amount of rewards to be gained through that. And then I would say second um, to maybe the marketers who are out there listening, thinking, man, I wish my firm would give me that opportunity, right? Um, I hope you don't give up on AEC. I hope that you um, find a stick firm that's, yeah, stick that's with like it. that, right? <laughs> Try another firm, look for the leaders that you're impressed by. Um, and then, you know, for, for the marketers who have the seat at the table, like change, change your firm. You have the power to determine how how you lead your group. And then I think, you know, others will follow behind you and then give back through speaking out and, you know, going to associations and being a mentor. That's how we change marketing experience in, in our industry. I love that. Marketing is going to take over the world, everyone. Um, The power of brand is real. So thank you all. Um, I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in today to the AEC Marketing for Principles podcast. Take care.